Hi, this is Pastor Ryan Spooner. I'm so glad that you're listening to our sermon podcast. I hope it's a blessing. If you live in the area, or even if you don't, we would love to have you join us on a Sunday morning. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the Millworks in Willington, Connecticut, 156 River Road. Also, if you'd ever like to help support our church financially, we would be extremely grateful. You can donate through our website, stpaulschurchct.org. Thanks. We, uh, we are continuing on in our series, On the Way to the Cross. As Keith said, this is our third week. Uh, and we're looking at events near the end of Jesus' earthly life to prepare us for the celebration of Good Friday and Easter. And the story that we're looking at this morning is what's often called the cleansing of the temple. Now, I think a better name for it is the protest at the temple. And uh, I'll explain why that is later. But this is the very memorable moment when Jesus enters into the temple at Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship, and he flips over some tables. And all four Gospels record a version of this story. So clearly, uh, everybody thought it was very significant, very important to include. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all put this story at the end of Jesus' earthly life, um, the day after Palm Sunday. So, of course, uh, next week is Palm Sunday, the day when we remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey And all the crowds welcomed him enthusiastically. Jerusalem was packed with people from all, from far away, because everyone had come to celebrate the Passover. And they had heard the rumors about this miracle worker, Jesus, who was attracting crowds and had this profound teaching. And they thought, maybe this guy is the Messiah. And so they welcomed him enthusiastically saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, because they believed, they hoped that this Jesus would be the one who would overthrow the Roman Empire and establish Jerusalem as supreme and make Israel uh, the greatest nation on earth. So you might say that the people were hoping that after Palm Sunday would come Insurrection Monday. But instead, they got Temple Protest Monday, which was not what they were expecting. And there's a direct link between Temple Protest Monday and Good Friday. Because when the religious leaders saw what Jesus did in the temple, they said, we got to figure out a way to kill this guy. And within four days, he was on the cross. Now, the Gospel of John also includes a temple protest story. But it actually places it very early in Jesus' ministry. And so there's two possibilities here. Uh, Either Jesus did a temple protest twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end, or uh, John is not particularly interested in presenting this event chronologically, but he's more interested in arranging his material in an artistic way or theological way. Um, You know how sometimes you might be watching a movie and it begins with a scene where you don't really have a lot of context, it's very dramatic, and then the next scene is like years earlier. John might be doing something like that, where he's telling the story in an artistic way. But 
Either way, all of the Gospels testify that Jesus did a temple protest, and they all recognize it as very significant. For Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this is the final straw leading to his crucifixion. And for John, this is an event that should guide our understanding of Jesus' entire ministry. So the account we're going to read comes from the Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 11. Mark 11, um, verse 12. Lord Jesus, uh, help us now to attend to the scriptures. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds. And uh, Lord, we just invite you uh, to speak to us. Grant us greater understanding about who you are and help us to be transformed more into the likeness of your Son. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And then we're going to skip ahead a little bit to uh, chapter 13, verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So as I was studying this passage this week, I was reminded of a meme that I've seen on social media related to this multiple times, uh, which says this, If anyone ever asks you what would Jesus do, remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. Now, if you're wondering where the whip was, that is described in John's account. It says that when Jesus walks into the temple courts and he sees everyone uh, buying and selling and exchanging the money, he goes and he fashions a whip out of cords, and then he uses it to drive out the sheep and cattle. And I think that's important to recognize. He uses it to drive out the sheep and cattle. It doesn't say anything about him striking human beings. Uh, with the whip. In fact, in Matthew's account, it says that right after Jesus does this, he then immediately starts healing people in the temple. So that's a good reminder. Okay, Jesus is not a injurer, right? He is a healer. So I have mixed feelings about this meme. On the one hand, uh, here's what I like about it. What I like is that it corrects a misperception that some people have, that Jesus was just this very passive and non-confrontational guy 
who just kind of breezily walked around and he was nice and he told everybody else to be nice. Right? But if you know the Gospels, you know that's not what Jesus was like. I mean, Jesus was confrontational. Jesus was provocative. Jesus cared deeply about truth and justice. And he was not shy about taking a stand for truth and justice, even if that could cause offense. Right? And this is probably the most dramatic example of Jesus being confrontational and provocative. Not the only one. Uh, but maybe the most dramatic. So it's good for that, that misperception to be dispelled from our minds. But on the other hand, here's why this, this meme concerns me. People can use a meme like this or the story of the temple protest to justify two things. And one is losing our temper, as if this is somehow godly to lose our temper. And the second would be violence. So first, regarding uh, violence, as I already mentioned, there's nothing in the stories about the temple protest of Jesus actually striking or injuring uh, people, uh, nor is there any record of him doing that anywhere in the Gospels. Uh, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, Peter tries to defend him by pulling out his sword, and what does Jesus say? Jesus says, put away your sword, those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Right? He gives a critique there of the use of violence, generally speaking, to build the kingdom of God. And as for this giving us license to lose our tempers and explode with angry, uncontrolled uh, wrath, if we read this story closely, we can see that Jesus is not, uh, he's not like the Hulk here. It's not like he just suddenly lost control of himself. What he does here is purposeful and intentional, and you, there's evidence that he's been planning it for a while. And one of the things that demonstrates that is that weird incident with the fig tree. I wanted to make sure that we read that. Before Jesus flips the tables at the temple, he has this weird interaction with a tree, right? Uh, he's hungry, and he goes up to this tree, which the text tells us is not in season, so clearly, it shouldn't be producing fruit. He sees that it's not producing fruit, and then he says, may no one eat fruit from you ever again. Now, is this moment really about a fig tree? Is Jesus really upset at a tree? And the Gospels think it's important for us to know this, that he got frustrated with the tree? No. What's happening here is Jesus is giving the disciples a living metaphor for what's about to happen in the temple. And that shows us that what Jesus did in the temple was not this uncontrollable outburst of anger, but it was something that was planned. So how is the moment with the fig tree a living metaphor? Well, the tree is supposed to represent the temple. Right? The temple is supposed to help Israel to produce good spiritual fruit. It should be part of a system that is helping Israel to live righteously and to be a light to all the nations of the earth. But like the fig tree, it's not bearing fruit. The system isn't working. And Jesus knows that he's about to go into the temple and do something dramatic in order to announce this system is done. Just like he did with the tree. May no one eat from you ever again. 
And this is why I had us read chapter 13, because this becomes even more clear there, right? Uh, a day or two later, when Jesus is leaving the temple, the disciples want to talk about how impressive the temple buildings are. They say, look, teacher, what massive buildings, what, what magnificent structures. But Jesus says, it's all coming down. Not one stone will be left on another. In other words, this system is done. It's obsolete. And what Jesus said did happen. If you know your history, you know that within 40 years, the Romans attacked Jerusalem and completely destroyed the temple. Now, a lot of the time when sermons are preached on this event, pastors use it as an opportunity to talk about anger and about the place of righteous anger and what we should do with our righteous anger. And I have preached a sermon exactly like that about five years ago. And I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong uh, with that kind of sermon. But the more I've looked at this passage, the more I'm convinced I am that the real point of this story is not about anger and how we should handle our anger. The main point of the story is that the temple system is done and the system of sacrifices is about to end. So this is why I think it's better to call this incident the temple protest instead of the temple cleansing, which is the more common way of describing it. Because when we say that Jesus cleansed the temple, it makes it sound like Jesus' goal was to come in and fix the temple. But if that were the case, why does he say to the fig tree, may you never bear fruit again? And why does he shortly afterwards say, this is all coming down? A theologian named uh, Michael Hardin puts it this way. He says, We have become accustomed to reading the story of the cleansing of the temple as though Jesus came in with his moral pine saw, took his broom and mop, and tried to make the place more presentable for guests. But Jesus did not cleanse the temple. No, there was something decidedly wrong with the entire system that could not be fixed. So, how did the system work? Well, it worked worked like this. People would come to the temple to offer animal sacrifices in honor of God. And so there would be people who would sell animals in the temple courts so that people could buy them for their sacrifices. And some people who came didn't have the right kind of currency to buy the animals, especially around the time of Passover when people came from very far away. So there were money changers who would convert the currency. Um, so in the outer court of the temple, you would have the money changers and the animal sellers. So let's look again more closely at what happens. Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the the currency converters, and the benches of those selling doves, which was a, a poor person's sacrifice, animal sacrifice, the doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, what some people like to emphasize is that Jesus was probably protesting the fact that 
uh, these money changers and animal sellers were uh, not behaving with integrity, uh, that the money changers were taking a cut of the currency conversion for themselves and that it was really high and, and that the animal sellers were um, selling animals way beyond uh, what they should be selling or that they were selling uh, impure animals that would then need to be returned and that it was a big, a big mess. And all of that may have been true, uh, but it is hard to determine to what extent uh, that was true. But I think it's entirely possible that was part of what Jesus was protesting. But I do think there's more going on than Jesus just critiquing that because notice this little detail that Jesus drives out both those who are buying and selling. Not just the people who are selling the animals, but the people who are buying the animals as well. And then we're told that Jesus won't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear that word merchandise, I think of like, Trinkets sold at the temple gift shop or something like that. But doing a little bit more research on that word, merchandise seems to refer to things that would have been used in the sacrificial system. So things like the, the animals that would be b being bought to offer as sacrifices. So when you take all that into consideration, what it shows us is that what Jesus did in this protest was he completely interrupted the whole sacrificial system. Right? The exchanging of the money to buy the animals, the animals themselves, that people could carry the animals to the, wherever they needed to go in order to sacrifice them. He disrupted the whole process, threw a wrench in the whole system at Passover, which was the time of year when that happened the most, right? when the place was just hopping with people buying sacrifices, selling sacrifices, making sacrifices. So Jesus throws a wrench in the works, and then he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So the temple and its sacrificial system, rather than being a house of prayer for the nations, rather than being a place for people to commune with God, it has become a place where robbers find refuge. The pastor and author Brian Zond makes a good point about this phrase, den of robbers. He says, you know, the den isn't actually where the robbery happens. The den is the where the robbers go to feel safe after they do their robbing. They rob and then they retreat to their den. So Jesus is saying that the temple has become a place for robbers to feel safe. Now, when Jesus uses that phrase, den of robbers, he's actually using the same words that the prophet Jeremiah used to describe the first temple. You're probably aware of this, uh, but Israel had two temples in its history. So the first temple uh, was completed around 957 B.C., and it lasted until 586 B.C. when it was destroyed by the Babylonian army. So this is the, the temple that Jeremiah referred to as a den of robbers. And then about 70 years later, the second temple was built, 516 B.C., and it, this was the temple that Jesus protested in and said it had become a den of robbers. And that temple was destroyed by the Roman army 
in 70 AD. So about 600 years before Jesus came in and flipped the tables in the temple, the prophet Jeremiah protested at the first temple, and he called it a den of robbers, and he prophesied that it would soon be destroyed. And now Jesus is quoting Jeremiah in the second temple, which is a sign that the second temple has become just as spiritually unfruitful as the first one. And because of that, destruction is coming. Let's look quickly at what Jeremiah said during that first protest 600 years earlier. He said, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah calls that first temple a den of robbers because so many of the people who supervised it and participated in it were, were doing what? They were mistreating foreigners. They were not taking care of the marginalized, of the orphans and the widows. They were being violent. They were shedding innocent blood. And they were trying to worship other gods on the side. You know, in those days, you might think, well, i got to worship all these different gods so that, you know, each one will protect me, right? So they were participating in injustice and idolatry. But they thought it didn't matter because, hey, they had the temple. They said, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. And they went to that temple, and they offered their animal sacrifices, and so they thought, we're safe. We're good. And that's why Jeremiah called it a robber's den, right? Because it had become a place for people whose consciences had become numb to their injustice and idolatry to go and then feel safe, to feel like they were okay. Because, hey, this is the temple of the Lord. We offer some sacrifices. We're good. And so when Jesus turns over those tables and calls the place a robber's den, he's saying, we become like Jeremiah's generation. He's saying, we become numb to our injustice and our idolatry. And he's saying that the destruction of the system is imminent. And this time, it's permanent. The temple will be gone for good. Twice in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, you've got to learn this lesson. That God desires mercy, not sacrifice. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. 
That is the same lesson that Jesus is trying to teach through the temple protest. What God really wants is not the sacrifices of bulls and goats. The New Testament uh, will later say that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. That's impossible. What God really wants is for his people to be people of mercy meaning that they would be people who care for the foreigners in their midst, that they would be people who look out for the widows and the orphans, people who seek to do justice, not just these ceremonial rituals. Now, ceremonial rituals, they can be great if they orient our hearts towards doing God's will. But if they're just a box that we check in order to feel like we're good with God, even though we're refusing to love our neighbors then those rituals are actually a den for a robber. I was reading a book recently that gave a striking modern example of this. A priest named Niall O'Brien wrote about a woman that he met in the Philippine Islands. And she was worried to tears about not being able to go to communion. But she seemed completely unconcerned about children who were dying on her farm, children who had been abandoned. Now, as I'm sure you guys can all tell, I am somebody who believes in the value of being part of a church and going to worship at a church. Hopefully that's obvious. And I'm somebody who believes in the value of studying the scriptures and of gathering with God's people to celebrate communion. These are important ways that God meets us, right? But if we participate in these things, but at the same time feel totally comfortable participating in injustice, feel at at ease with our own xenophobia or racism, something's really wrong. And our religious practices have become a den for robbers. We still haven't learned the lesson, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The temple and its sacrificial system were not bearing the spiritual fruit that God desired. And so here's the good news. God sent a new temple to replace the old. And the new temple is Jesus. Now, you might ask, well, how is Jesus a new temple? It's kind of a stretch, isn't it? Well, no, because remember, the temple was supposed to be the place where God dwelled. God's house. It was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth met. And that was, that's what Jesus is, right? Fully God and fully man. God in the flesh. He is the new temple. And in fact... Jesus himself calls himself the temple. In John's account of the temple protests, the Jews respond to this, meaning the religious leaders, not just Jews in general, but the religious leaders, they responded to the protest and said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. So there it is. 
Jesus calls himself the temple. Jesus is the new temple, the new house of God, the vessel where heaven meets earth, and he is a way better temple than the previous one. Now, why is that? Well, for one thing, when this temple is destroyed, it comes back in three days. You know, the, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed 1,953 years ago. It's still destroyed. But that's not the only reason why the new temple is superior. Here's the thought that I want to leave us with. In the old temple, people were offering sacrifices but not learning mercy. But the new temple, Jesus, offers the sacrifice of himself so that we might receive mercy and learn to be merciful. The new temple provides forgiveness of sins in a way that the old temple never could. For the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. The new temple is the mercy of God given to us in Jesus. And the new temple shows us in a way that nothing else ever could, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. So if we haven't learned that lesson, we need Jesus to flip our tables. Lord, we thank you uh, that you desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that puts us in a position of a very high calling, a challenging calling, if we're going to follow in your, your footsteps. But Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that comes to us through faith, that empowers us to walk as you want us to walk, to live with mercy. Lord, help each one of us to receive the mercy that you have so generously offered through Jesus. We thank you that we are not called to a temple where we offer sacrifices, but we are called to a temple who has become the sacrifice for our sake. In Jesus' name, amen.